Lord God, uh, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, God, that we know that it is true and that it is indeed your word. God, we pray that you would speak to us tonight through your word, that your spirit would illuminate your truth to us. I pray that we would live for Christ, that we would put any idols aside, that we would see that you are worthy of all worship and praise, and God, that we would even worship you in this next hour as we look to your word. Convict us and change us by your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, the pursuit of joy in life is not an uncommon pursuit. In fact, most people, they make their decisions in their life and they prioritize their life according to what they believe will bring them the most joy. Whether they realize it or not, I think people just naturally do this. And they look for their joy in all kinds of things. People pursue joy in success in life. People pursue their joy in finances. People pursue joy in relationships. People pursue joy in the comforts of this world. In fact, if you remember, if you were here in our study in Ecclesiastes, we saw that, right? Solomon is just looking for joy and for meaning and purpose in all of these things in the world. You can often tell what someone is seeking their joy in or, or what they think will bring them the most joy by that which is their greatest affection. What we seek joy in typically is what rules our life. What it is that we believe will bring us the most joy typically resides in the center of our heart and it kind of acts as the command center. We make decisions. We, we prioritize based on what is at the core of our heart's desires. It is what we live for. So I ask us tonight, or I ask you specifically, where do you seek to find joy in your life? I ask that to myself as well. What is it that you live for? In this passage, Paul shows that having Christ at the center of your life, having him at the command center of your heart, produces a life of joy. When we live a Christ-centered life, we can truly find joy in life. Despite our circumstances, despite our suffering, despite our hardships, there is joy in living a Christ-centered life. If you remember, if you've been with us in this book in Philippians so far, we've seen that Paul is in prison when he's writing this letter. And he's already said that he does rejoice. We saw that at the end of 18 last week. He says, Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So he says he does rejoice, but now at the end of 18, he says that he will rejoice. Right there at the end of 18, for some of you, it's a new section in your Bible. It says, Yes, and I will rejoice. He already says he does rejoice, and now he says he will rejoice. 
How can he be so sure that he will rejoice? He doesn't know what his future holds. He's in prison with an impending trial. He doesn't know. But he does know that he will rejoice. Why? Why does he know this? Because his life is centered around Christ. And in living a Christ-centered life, he knows that no matter what, no matter what happens in life or in death, he will have joy in Christ. Christ is at the center. Christ is what drives his decisions. And living for Christ is what gives him joy. Even in prison. Even in the uncertainty of what lies ahead. So tonight we are going to look at the joy that we can have in living a Christ-centered life. And we're going to do that by looking at six ways in which a Christ-centered life acts. And as a result, how that produces joy in the Christian. Okay, so just six main points for tonight. First, we see that a Christ-centered life hopes in salvation. Verses 19 through 20. A Christ-centered life hopes in salvation. All of these are going to start with the Christ-centered life. Verse 19. Well, the end of 18. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. Why will you rejoice? Verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. For my deliverance. Now, there's debate on what deliverance is referring to. Why is it? He's so joyful that he knows that through the prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, it will turn out for his deliverance. What does he mean by deliverance? One belief is that Paul is referring to his deliverance from prison. That he knows God will work through their prayers and through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, and he will be delivered from prison. And that's not a bad view at all. In fact, that's very well what it could be referring to. There are some good arguments there. However, I land and I believe that what he, when he says delivered, when he says he's sure that he will be delivered, he's referring more to the final salvation, his final salvation, and ultimate vindication. And I think that fits the context of Paul's bigger picture of life and death, which we're going to get to tonight. In addition to that, many scholars point out that it seems as if Paul's alluding to Job 13 from the Septuagint, which is the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, specifically Job 13, 16. That in some ways, he may be viewing himself much like Job. That Job is innocent, and yet he's suffering. And Job, while being accused by his friends, knows that he has salvation in the Lord. And one day, he will be vindicated. And in the same way, Paul knows that that everything that's been going on, all of this suffering which he's been experiencing, that it's okay. Because his hope is in his salvation. And that his salvation is his vindication. It will be proved in that. Not whether he's released from prison or not. He doesn't know what will happen. That's not where his hope lies. But his hope is in his salvation. And so then we ask, based on this verse, well, where does this vindication come from? Well, he says that it comes from the intercessory prayers of God's people and through the power of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. See, I think it's important to notice 
that this kind of a perseverance, this kind of growth in sanctification, this, this kind of a hope in salvation does not come from ourselves. It doesn't come from our own strength, but it comes through the power of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And the means in which this is brought about, at least in this case for Paul, is through the prayers of God's people. Okay, I know that could be kind of confusing, so let me just break it down this way. Let, let me encourage you in two ways for that. One, I would say this. Be praying for others. Be praying for others, because God works through our prayers. Paul says, I know that through your prayers. I know that through your prayers. He says, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul knows this. Remember, this is what we are reading here is the inspired word of God. And it says that Paul knows that through their prayers, he will be delivered. He will be vindicated. He will reach the completion of his salvation. I know that can be confusing, and we, we may not completely understand all the depths of how God works through our prayers. Remember, Damon even talked about that last week. But we can know that he does, because his word says that he does. And so pray for one another. Pray for your leaders. They were praying for Paul. Secondly, I would say rely on the power of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Rely on his power. How do we persevere to the end? How can we have a sure, confident hope in our salvation? Through the power of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Rest in His power. Rely on His strength. Now let's look back at our text in verse 19 and 20. It says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed. See that? It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed. It's important to understand the meaning, I think, of those words, hope and ashamed. Because how we use them today maybe is a little different. This hope, most of you guys know, a biblical hope is what? It is, is it like hopefully this happens or is it a confidence assurance? Which one? Confidence. confidence, assurance, right? Yeah, this hope, biblical hope is an assurance. It's a sure thing. And this is shamed. It shouldn't be like ashamed, like I'm embarrassed. This is shamed is more like, like disappointed. That kind of an ashamed. So what he's saying is that Paul is confident. His hope, he has hope of the sure reality that he will not be disappointed. He will not be ashamed. But he will be vindicated. He will reach the fullness of his salvation. Why does Paul rejoice even in prison, even in the unknown, even in the suffering? Why? Because he has a sure hope of his salvation. Do you see that? Christ is at the center of his heart. And so his focus is on Christ and the assurance of the salvation to come. You see, when our lives are centered on the things of this world, there is no hope in that. But when our lives are centered around Christ, we can have a sure hope in our final salvation. And this produces joy, even in the greatest unknown, even in the greatest of difficulties, because our hope is in Christ. Secondly, we see that a Christ-centered life honors Christ in life and death. Come on. A Christ-centered life honors Christ in life and death. Verse 20b. 
He says, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Do you hear that? As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all shamed, right? I know I have confidence. I will be vindicated. I will have reached full salvation. But that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Once again, we see Paul's priority in life. Guys, it's simple. That Christ would be honored. That's his priority. I mean, what a priority. What a challenge. Christ would be honored. Is that your top priority in life? That Christ would be honored in your life? That Christ would be honored by your life see he's not concerned about his reputation remember we looked at that last week these people hey paul they're trying to get at you you're in prison they're, they're preaching out rival you can see i don't care christ is proclaimed so i rejoice he, he's not concerned about his reputation he's not concerned about the outcome of this trial whether it results in life or death he's not concerned about what tomorrow holds in fact all those things he, he has no control over but you know what he does care about? Honoring Christ. And in that, he, he, he has control over that. How does he do this? Well, he says, but that with full courage. Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body. He says, with full courage, Christ will be honored in my body. That is how you honor Christ. That you courageously live for him. That you boldly proclaim him. That you boldly live in obedience to him. That you live a life of courage for the Lord. And notice he says he will honor him with his body. He's willing to give up his body. He's willing to give up his life for the Lord. That he will courageously give up his body in death if that means it would honor Christ. Can you live with that much courage? Do you live with that kind of a priority that you would give up your body in death to honor Christ? What about in life? In living? Will you courageously give up your body in life to honor Christ? Sometimes that's harder. Maybe we'd say, I'd die for Christ. But I'm not willing to stand up for Christ to my friends. How do you use your body to honor Christ? He says he will honor Christ with his body. Do you honor Christ? Christian, do you honor Christ with your body? Do you honor him or do you dishonor him with your eyes? Do you honor him or do you dishonor him with your mouth? Do you honor him or do you dishonor him with your hands? Do you honor him or do you dishonor him with your feet, with where you go? In your life, how are you using your body to honor Christ? In life or death, in living or in dying, we ought to honor Christ with our bodies. 
what is your priority in life? Is it to honor Christ in life and in death? Without even saying a word, you could loudly proclaim to everyone what is most important to you just by looking at your life. What does your life reveal about what is most important to you as others are looking in on your life? What does your life reveal is your priority in life? Is it Christ's honor? See, whether by life or by death, it doesn't matter. Paul is going to live courageously to honor Christ with his life, with his body. And that is why he can have joy. Because in living a Christ-centered life, it doesn't matter. In life or death, he's going to live courageously to honor Christ. Maybe he'll live, but maybe he'll die. It doesn't matter. His main concern is the honor of Christ. His main concern is in full courage to honor Christ with his body. Do you see that? Christian, find joy in life by having a Christ-centered life that courageously lives for the honor of Christ. Next, we see that a Christ-centered life lives for Christ. Verse 21. If you're tired of writing a Christ-centered life, you could just write the two little dash marks. I'm trying to help you out. You know, a little... You know, that means like just drop down. You know what I mean? A Christ-centered life lives for Christ. Verse 21. Oh my goodness, what, what a verse. I wanted to just, just preach this verse alone, but you know, come on now. <laughs> for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Oh my goodness. Come on now, look at that. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why is it he can live so courageously for Christ? He just said, I can live courageously. I'll honor Christ in my body. How can you do that? Why? Because for to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. That's exactly why. Because living courageously for Christ is true living. For to live is Christ. And if he courageously lives for Christ and he dies, then that's gain, he says. So no matter what, he can courageously live for Christ. So let's look at both of that. First, let's focus on what he says, to live as Christ. To live as Christ. What does that mean? What does it mean to live? If someone were to ask you, what does living mean to you? What would you say? If someone were to ask you, what is the thing in which you live for? That, that, you, that you hold on to as your life. What is your life all about? What would you say? Maybe for many people right now, you'd say, man, for living right now, it's, it's school. I'm living for my grades. I, I live for school. I live to get educated. I live to get a good degree. Maybe some right now, man, I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I'm living for the man. Work. Maybe you say, man, living right now is, is relationships or a relationship. That's what my life's all about right now. I live for fun. My life is all about success. 
It's about pleasure. I live for comfort. I just live for simplicity. Maybe these are the things in which to you it means to live. See, to live means that this thing is supreme. To live means that this thing is that which has control over your life. To live is to be in love with this, to be dominated, to be controlled by this, that it is your all. That's what it means to live. And for Paul, he says, for to me, to live is Christ. Christ is his life. Notice he, he doesn't even say God. He says Christ. Now, it may seem nitpicky. In fact, it might even seem irreverent. But hear me out. A Muslim could say God is their life. A Jew could say God is their life. A Mormon could say God is their life. A random person on the street could just say, yeah, man, God's my life. You hear all the time from professional athletes, God's number one in my life. First off, I just want to thank God, right? God, family, and then football. We can say God. He doesn't say God. Paul says, for me to live is Christ. It's Christ. Christ is his life. Jesus, God the Son, and his glory is what Paul's life is all about. That's his concern. Christ is his love. Christ controls him. Christ is supreme. Christ is who dominates his life. To live is Christ. For to me, to live is Christ. Did you notice? He said, for to me, to live is Christ. For to me, it's personal. But what about you? Can you say, for to me, to live is Christ? This is Paul's testimony. For him, to live is Christ. And I think that's evident as we see his life. But what about you? Can you say, for to me, to live is Christ. How would you fill in that blank? Maybe for you it is for me to live is good grades. For to me to live is to have a family one day. For to me to live is to have this relationship, to have these friends. For me to live is to to have all these followers on social media. For me to live is to have fun. For me to live is to have a comfortable and enjoyable life. For me to live is to have all these experiences. For me to live is what? How would you fill in that blank personally? How would you answer that question? For to me to live is what? What are you living for? If for you to live is something other than Christ, I want to gently but firmly tell you that you are wasting your life. Christ is the only one worth living for. 
period. And there's no competition. You want to find true joy in life? It is found in Christ. And it's found in living for Christ. One of the biggest schemes of the enemy, I think, especially here in America, is that living for Christ is this joyless life. That living for Christ, it's, it's a burden that, oh, Jesus, Christian, it's just a killjoy. Nothing can be further from the truth. Living for Christ is joy. It is purpose. It is meaning. I mean, take it from Paul. We've seen so much joy in this letter. How? He's in prison. How can he be so joyful? Well, for him to live is Christ. You see, there's joy in a life lived for Christ. But he doesn't just stop there. But next, we see that a Christ-centered life gains in death the rest of 21 right he says for to me to live is christ and to die is gain to die is gain a christ-centered life gains in death See, not only does Paul say that to live is Christ, but he also says to die is gain. What a weird thing to say. Well, think of how contrary that is to how most people view death. To die is not gain. How could it be? How, how could that be? To die would be to end everything. To die would be to lose everything. That's not gain. And indeed, if you are not in Christ, that is true. But in Christ, all of that changes. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ means to die is to gain. Because Jesus has conquered the grave, and those who are united in him share in this victory. And so for the Christian, to die means to be in the presence of Christ. It means no more pain. And no more suffering. It means that the presence of sin is gone. And that you will be made like Christ. It means that you will be in paradise. Worshipping at the feet of Jesus. That is gain. And there is nothing greater than that. And it is so great. That we can't even comprehend. The magnitude of its greatness. And so Christian we can look death at the face and we can say bring it it is game yes i mean do you see how living a christ-centered life makes you invincible it, it creates a, a boldness to live for christ no matter what the consequence may be imagine the conversations with paul in prison remember he's attached to a guard right and then those guards may be trying to get to him and they're like oh paul we're going to kill you. Great! To die is gain! Oh, okay. Well, then we're going to release you. Great! To live is Christ! Oh, okay. Well, actually, we're, you're going to stay here and suffer a little longer. Great! It's my joy to suffer for Christ, for I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed. He's unstoppable! <laughs> 
And you see the boldness that a Christ-centered life creates. Do you see the joy that a Christ-centered life creates? That in life or in death, I will praise God. I will exalt the name of Christ and I will have joy in him. Unstoppable. Christian, do you view death as gain for you? Do you know what that it is? Christian, you are not living your best life now, unlike some authors claim. You will never live your best life here on earth because the best is yet to come. And it's not even close. To die is gain. Therefore, live boldly for Christ. Therefore, live fully committed to Christ, making the most of the life that you have here on earth. To die is gain. Now the statement, to die is gain, can only be said and is only true for the Christian. Do you realize that? It's only true for the Christian. For the unbeliever, to die is not to gain. Death is your greatest enemy. Because this life is your best life. If you are not in Christ. And death ends it. And death ushers you into the eternal consequences of your sin. And to die is to face your maker. And to die is to stand guilty before God. And to be cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity. That is not a game. You see the difference is Christ. Why is death gained for the Christian? Because of Christ. Why is death not gained for the unbeliever? Because they have rejected Christ and they have chosen to stand on their own righteousness. And because of that, you, unbeliever, you remain in sin and you remain guilty before God. But let me say to you, if you are not a Christian, that there is hope in Christ. That there is forgiveness and there is salvation in Christ. And by his grace, I pray that you would place your faith, that you personally, I'm talking about you and your own faith. I'm not saying your faith of your parents. I'm not saying your faith of your friends. I'm saying you personally and your own faith. I pray That by God's grace, you would place your faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ and that you would repent of your sins and that you would turn to Christ in worship. To die is gain for the Christian. If you are not in Christ, I pray that he would open your eyes to see that you would turn to him in faith and repentance. That you would find joy in him. Next, we see a Christ-centered life lives in dilemma. A Christ, not like the lemma, not like dilemma, in dilemma. It, it's on the board, you see it. A Christ-centered life lives in dilemma. The lemon? Dilemma. Man, I can't get it out of my head now. Christ-centered life lives in dilemma. 
Just got to stop saying it. <laughs> Verse 22. It's 22 through 24. 22. If I am to live in the flesh, hear his dilemma. Hear Paul. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Like, even though death is gain, Paul understands that if he is to remain alive, that means fruitful labor for him. See, a Christ-centered life is a purposeful life that produces fruit, that, that labors fruitfully. Paul's not hoping to live so that he can continue growing his tent business. You know that he was a tent maker. That's how he made a living. He's not like, oh man, business is booming. I hope I get out of prison so that I can start making more tents. He's not saying, oh man, if I live, I'm finally going to be able to finish that season on Netflix I've been wanting to watch. This will be great. I sure hope I get out of here. No, Paul's saying, look, if I'm to live, that means more fruitful labor. Like, that's what I'm doing. He lives with intentionality. He lives with purpose. And this is where his dilemma comes from. Look at 23 and 24. I'm hard-pressed between the two, as in living or dying. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. Right? He's like, well, yeah, like I desire to, to die is gain. Sure, I'll die. I get to be with Christ. That's far better. Verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. You see, he is so ready to be with Christ. He's ready to die. That's his desire. He says, it would be better. Now, Paul's not advocating for suicide. I think it's clear, but some people ask that. Okay, he, 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 So I want to be clear on that. He's not saying like, oh yeah, all Christians should just kill themselves. No. But Paul understands that to be with Christ is far better than anything else. And that's a good desire to want to be with Christ. I think understanding the word that he uses for depart in verse 23, he says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. I think let's understand what that word means. The word for depart was often used for, for a pilgrim who was on a journey, and the word for depart specifically was that of a, a pilgrim breaking down their tent and moving on, like departing, like, okay, like we're wrapping this thing up, tent closed, packaged, and here we go. The idea, I think what Paul understood, is that the Christian life, even his own life, is that of a temporary living space, like here on earth, right? Like he's a tent, he's packing up camp. That our lives are tents. This is not our permanent dwelling place. And death will break up this camp, and we will move on and depart to our final residence. Paul's not living for life on earth, but his desire is to be home. To be in his permanent residence. To be with the Lord. He wants to be with Christ. Listen to this and know that it's okay to desire and to long to be in the presence of Christ. That's good. While at the same time to be content and thankful for the opportunity and purpose that God still has for you here on earth. See, that's his dilemma. He has the strong desire to be with Christ. But he also knows that to be alive is to bear fruitful labor, and that'd be helpful for them, as he says in verse 24. Let me ask you this. Is there any dilemma in your life in regards to this? In the sense of, are, are you longing to be with Christ? 
Do you long to be with Jesus? If Christ were to return today, if you return five minutes from now, would you be at all disappointed? Would there be experiences in life that you felt you missed out on? That if you're honest, you'd rather have that experience first than than to be with Christ. That you would kind of want him to wait a few more years before his return. Christian, you should have such a desire to be with Christ that there is somewhat of a dilemma. Because, man, I want to be there with him so bad. But through this dilemma, you trust in the sovereignty of God, knowing that because you are still alive, God still has a purpose for you right now. See, that's the thing. You can be confident of this, Christian, that if you are still alive today, which all of you are so far, then God still has a plan and he has a purpose for you to be alive. Otherwise, you wouldn't be alive. And so make the most of the opportunity that God has given to you to see another day. One day you will not see another day. And if you're in Christ, you will rejoice in that because you will be with him. But until then, God has a purpose for you right now until the day you die. And so praise God and rejoice in that and live boldly and purposely for him, knowing that you are still alive for a reason and to honor him with your body. So with Paul, you can say to die is gain, but I'm alive right now and to live is Christ. And therefore, with my life, I will live for Christ. Christ is my purpose. Christ is my passion. Christ is my desire. And one day I will be home with him, which is far better. But until that day, as long as I have breath, I will live for Christ. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Lastly, we see that a Christ-centered life edifies the body. Verses 25 and 26. A Christ-centered life edifies the body. He's going through this dilemma, and he says this. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glorify in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So while Paul has this dilemma, he concludes, and he trusts, he will stay alive and live purposely to serve them for their edification. Specifically for their progress and joy in the faith, and so they may glory in Christ Jesus. Do you see that? I mean, look at those desires. What great desires that he has. And may we have those same desires for one another. He seeks to edify them in their progress and their faith. Do you see that? That if he is still to be alive, then his goal is to be part of their progress, of their faith. That they would grow in their faith in Jesus Christ. That he would make much of him, make much of Christ. That he would proclaim Christ and that they would grow in their faith in him. He seeks to edify them in their joy in their faith. Not that they would simply just grow in their intelligence of their faith, but that their joy would increase. That they would find joy in their salvation. That they would find joy 
in faithfully living for Christ. And he seeks to edify them that they may glory in Jesus Christ. I mean, that's what it's all about. To Christ be all glory and praise. See, if Paul is to remain alive, then it is his goal and his desire that he may edify the body. How? That they may glorify Christ. Man, may we share in these same desires so that we may act in that way towards one another. I mean, do you think this way about ministry? Do you think this way about the body of Christ? That you strive to be part of their progress in faith? One another. That you strive to increase their joy in Christ? Do you strive to increase the joy of believers in Christ? That you strive to bring glory to Christ? You see, to live a Christ-centered life means to edify the body and to purposefully and intentionally be part of their growth in Jesus Christ. That they may find joy in Him and that they may glory in Him. Christian, you are still alive right now. Will you edify the body and live for His glory? Well, as we close... I'll ask again, what is it that you live for? Where is it that you seek joy in life? What, what is at the control center of your life? Whatever it is that you're living for, let me ask you, is it worth living for? Is it worth dying for? I can promise you this, if it's not Christ, it's not worth living for. And it's certainly not worth dying for. But Christ is worth both living and dying for. Because he is worthy of our whole lives. And he is worthy of all praise. And I assure you this, that there is great joy in living a life for Christ. That there is true everlasting joy in worshiping him. To live a Christ-centered life is to live a joy-filled life. Let me be clear on one thing before we we close, before we wrap this up. To live a Christ-centered life does not mean living a life of excellence to be accepted by God. That is not what that means. To live a Christ-centered life does not mean that you strive to do more and more for Christ so that he is more and more pleased with you. Or so that he loves you more and more. Or so he accepts you more and more. Or so that you're secure more and more in him. That's why you live a Christ-centered life. No, to live a Christ-centered life means to rest in his grace. To know that it is finished. That he accomplished it all on your behalf. That God is pleased with you. That God does love you. That you are secure all because of Christ. And if you are in Christ, none of that can change. None of that can be removed. To live a Christ-centered life means to rest in the grace of Christ and then to respond in worship, to respond in obedience and good works. Not to earn anything, not to secure anything, but because your greatest desire is to now live for the one whom you love. 
Because Christ is your life. Because to live is Christ. And to die is gain. To be with him. So rest in the grace of Christ. Live a Christ-centered life. And find joy in a life and a death that worships and glorifies him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that there is joy in living for you. Father, we thank you for the finished work of your Son. Lord, I pray that we would rest in your grace towards us and that Christ would truly be at the center of our hearts and our lives and that we'd find joy in living a Christ-centered life to your glory and your praise. Show us, God, where idols may be resting in our hearts. Show us where we may be seeking joy outside of you. Convict us by your spirit and change us that we would find joy in you. Help us, God, even in this time as we discuss these things. We ask, Lord, that you'd be glorified. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.